after I become a Christian, then what am I supposed to do? You know, for a lot of people, I think that's a hang-up. I think a lot of people wonder, when I become a follower of Jesus, then, then what? I think most people would think, well, if I become a follower of Jesus, then I guess I'll go to church. And you all talk a lot about Bible classes, so maybe I'll go to a Bible class or something, but what, what else? And I think a lot of people who become Christians would say, well, I'm coming out of a sinful lifestyle. In fact, I've really struggled with this particular sin or this particular type of sin, and so I know that that's going to be something I'm going to have to continue to work on with the help of God, with the help of God's people. I'm going to have to continue to, to try to do better about, about that. I, I think a lot of people know that. But then they hear lessons about just Christian living in general. But especially they hear lessons about things like evangelism and they think, wait a second. Am I supposed to do that? I mean, are they going to expect me like the next Sunday to teach a Bible class or something? Are they going to expect me to, to become a Christian and just a few days later maybe teach a ladies Bible class? Or... or, or Noah's going to come and say, hey, you're doing the youth devo next week or something. Is that what, what's, what's the deal here? In Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, the text we read a few minutes ago, we're introduced to a man that we know by a couple of different names. The text here calls him Levi. We know if we put the accounts of the Gospel together, this is Matthew. I'm going to use those names interchangeably because we've got Matthew and Levi. We have Mark. We have Jesus. I'm going to confuse you every way I possibly can. But I'm going to, I'm going to just go back and forth to Matthew and Levi. The text begins by talking about a crowd. King James Version uses the word multitude. And the word is one that can mean that there's so many people that it's pressing in around. There's a lot of people here. But by the end of it, we're basically talking about Matthew and something about him. And What Mark does in these verses is fabulous. Because here we're introduced to this man that we don't know just a whole lot about, especially before this. And yet, by the end, he's doing something that all of us can do. Whether we've been a Christian for decades or days, He gives us the evangelistic model of a new follower. And what I want to do is walk through these verses together. And we, you could add to this list if you want to, but I want to make four observations to these verses to see the flow of the text, but also to see how we end up with this man doing something that every one of us could do, even though he's only been a follower of Jesus for a very, very short amount of time. First of all, consider the looking. As we suddenly introduce the lesson, we begin this section of Scripture, beginning of verse 13, with Jesus in a crowd or a multitude. He's teaching them. And we never lose sight of the fact that Jesus was always teaching. You know, some people want to make Jesus just a, a miracle worker. And yeah, He did a lot of miracles, but even His miracles were teaching. They were always pointing to the things that He wanted people to learn. And so it's no surprise to us that Jesus is teaching this particular crowd of people. But it's also interesting that here in Mark chapter 2, it seems that at least for a little while, this crowd is kind of on the move. Jesus teaches by the sea, but He's moving along. And it seems like people are with Him. That, that, that wasn't uncommon. That seems a little strange to us, but it wasn't uncommon at all for a rabbi to have his disciples just following Him around everywhere. William Barclay, in his commentary on Mark, suggests in this section about Mark chapter 2, he says Jesus was doing something that was common for every rabbi. In other words, just people just were around the rabbi all the time. But as that crowd is moving and doing different things, 
We're told that he passed by and saw Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now think about that one little observation just for a second. Did Jesus know there was a crowd, a crowd around him? Of course he did. But Jesus did not take notice of a particular person in that crowd. He actually noticed someone who was outside of that crowd. And he also took notice of someone who was just doing his everyday, day-to-day job. He was at the tax booth because he was a tax collector. That's just where he should have been, what he should have been doing. But what a beautiful sentiment that is, that in the midst of this crowd, Jesus sees someone. Now, now why did Jesus notice Matthew? We don't know. Was there something in the look of Matthew's face that drew Jesus' attention? I don't know. Had Matthew gone before to, to hear Jesus teach, and now Jesus is just... Seeing, I remember you, I, I don't know. Did, did, did Jesus just see something within Matthew that nobody else saw? I, I don't know. But what a comforting thing it is for us to consider that Jesus saw this one individual person. Because in the sea of humanity, how often do we wonder if Jesus sees me? And even in the midst of the communities in which we live, with hundreds or thousands of people, do I really wonder, does Jesus see me? Yes. Jesus looked at a crowd. He knew they were there. But Jesus is looking for individuals. And folks, that needs to be our evangelistic method also, by the way. We, we want big numbers. We want to talk about you know, the church building bursting at the seams. And I, I look forward to those days too, but the only way that happens is individually. The only way that happens is to see each individual person and try to reach out to each individual person to know people individually as Jesus did. There's a looking, but then there's also a leaving. Jesus gives that invitation to Matthew, follow me. And Mark simply records for us that he rose and followed him. You may find it of interest that Matthew himself also records this, this interaction and he says almost verbatim the same thing. He'll say that Jesus said, follow me, and he rose and left. That's Matthew himself. But you have to turn to Luke's account to see something that's added to that. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 28, Luke will say, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. What a statement. Now some have said, well, all that's meant by that is he left the tax booth. He left everything there at his job. And I suppose in some, in some sense that's true. That he left his materials there, whatever it was he was working with that day, he left all that stuff behind and went out. And I, again, just as far as facts go, I suppose that's true. But that's just not what Luke says. Luke says he left everything and rose and followed Jesus. You could probably add some things to this, but there are at least a couple things I think by implication that's meant by that. One is, did Matthew leave behind sin or at least the shame associated with that? To be a tax collector was a, a profession, of course, but well, we know something about tax collectors by Jesus' interaction with another one. Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19. Remember what Zacchaeus said to Jesus? If I have defrauded anyone, I'll repay them fourfold. If that wasn't a fairly common practice, then why did Zacchaeus ever bring it up in the first place? A lot of tax collectors were, at best, shady individuals. Some were just downright sinful. 
But at the very least, they were seen as, as shameful, especially if they were Jews who were collecting taxes for the Romans from their own people, from the Jews. Even in this very text in Mark chapter 2, you recall that tax collectors and sinners are very often listed together because that's the way the Jews thought of that group of people. They're just another group of sinners. So did Matthew leave behind a particular sin? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But he probably would have left behind at least some sort of shame with having that particular role. But then also by saying he left everything, could we not say he probably left behind at least some level of comfort? The Romans, so far as we can tell, basically paid tax collectors not a whole lot. And the reason they paid people not a whole lot was, tax collectors anyway, the, the reason they didn't pay tax collectors a whole lot was they basically said, you make whatever you want to make off the taxes. Make sure you collect the taxes, but then if you want to charge above that, that's fine. And so, in a world of haves and have-nots, Matthew could have been, if you please, a have. It's also possible that Matthew could have been something that was very, very rare in that culture. A middle-class citizen. And leaving behind something of a level of comfort simply because he had finances. But also, he would have left behind, as far as comfort, some connection to the Roman government. Now, he didn't have connections necessarily with the emperor or anything, but so long as tax collectors did their job and stayed in line, the Romans had their back. After all, they're making the money for the government. And so they would have made sure that these tax collectors were taken care of, that they were comfortable in a certain way. And he left everything and rose and followed Jesus. But you think about those couple of things. It can be easy sometimes to talk to someone and say, you need to leave behind a life of sin. Maybe they even know. Something in my life is messed up. Something isn't right. And, and you can take them to the Scriptures and say, here's what God says about that particular thing. And, and say, here's what you need to leave behind. Okay. Some people will accept that and some won't. But it's not usually that difficult to point out, here's what the Bible says about, about this particular sin or this type of sin. It's a completely different thing, is it not? To try to teach people that you have to leave everything. That Jesus has to come first. And sometimes, that's going to make life very uncomfortable. That might mean I have to leave a job in order to be faithful to Jesus. That might mean financially I'm not as comfortable as I was. It might mean I have to leave or change a friendship in order to really have Jesus first. But that's also true of those of us who are already Christians. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, the Hebrews writer does not just say to lay aside sin. He says lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. I think most of us would say, yeah, lay aside sin. I, I, I sin from time to time, but... When I realize what I've done, I put it beside. But that every weight thing, that's a little harder, isn't it? The things that aren't necessarily sinful, but they hold me back from a life of faith. Am I willing to lay those things aside in order to run the race that's set before me as the Hebrews writer talks about? Matthew sets an amazing example for us in that he left everything. But then observe in the third place, the location. Because in verse 15, we have a pretty dramatic change that just kind of just jumps out at us. 
In verses 13 and 14, we've been outside. There's been this crowd moving and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, in verse 15, we're no longer outdoors. We're indoors. And we're, there's a feast going on. It's just kind of one of those just abrupt changes in the text. That there, there's no real movement from the outside to the inside. And so, so what happens here? Well, if you read Mark's account from which we're, we're studying, all it says is basically they're indoors. Went to his house. Matthew, by the way, in his account says the exact same thing. But again, it's Luke that makes you to point out that this is Matthew's house. This is Levi's house. By the way, parenthetically, does it not say something about Matthew himself? That he doesn't make any big deal out of this? Matthew doesn't say, let me tell you what I left behind in order to follow Jesus. And then let me tell you that I invited him over to my house. He doesn't do that. He just says, he rose and followed him, and then he had him to the house. Luke is the one who makes it the most clear, saying this is Matthew's own house. And he invites him over for some type of banquet, some type of feast. Luke 5.29, he made for him a feast. What an amazing example. Here's someone who's only been a follower of Jesus for, what, a few hours? And he invites Jesus over for a banquet. And what he does at that feast or that banquet is he actually provides an outlet for a couple of things that any Christian should do, whether you've been a Christian for 50 or 60 years or 50 or 60 minutes. Because in that banquet, he does two things. First of all, he honors Jesus. Remember Luke's wording? He made for him a feast or a banquet. This is not like Matthew is going, well, I already had this feast planned. And so I guess i got to invite the new rabbi. No! He, he, he planned this for Jesus. Whatever the banquet was, however long it lasted, whatever it consisted of, it was done in some form or fashion to show gratitude or honor or respect for Jesus. I don't want to read too much into it, but that's what's going on here. Is that not the way our Christian lives should be? No, we can't have Jesus over for a feast. I understand that. But should people not be able to look at our lives and say that everything that we do is out of respect and honor and gratitude to Jesus? But then also through that feast, Matthew invited people to meet Jesus. There's people there like tax collectors and others, and here they are at this feast. Don't you just love that Matthew starts with the people he knew? I mean, he, he was a tax collector, right? And part of the guest list is the tax collectors. That's who he knew. Matthew did not become a follower of Jesus and then walk up to Jesus and say, okay, I've been a follower for 25 minutes now. Send me to China on a mission trip. So I can... He didn't do that. He didn't know how to do that. Matthew understood that he didn't understand Matthew knew that he didn't know everything. But Matthew also knew that he could do something. And so he simply started with the people he knew, and if I may paraphrase, basically said, let's have a dinner, I've got somebody I want you to meet. Can I do that? Is that not something that every Christian, including you who just come out of the waters of baptism, can do? In fact, I would suggest to you that often people who are new Christians are better at this than many of us who have been Christians for 20 or 30 or 40 years. 
Because they are so excited by what they have just learned and experienced and the transformation of their lives, they can't wait to tell someone. And Matthew seemed to understand that, that by inviting people to his home, there was some connection that could at least try to be made through this act of hospitality to where they could at least be near Jesus. But we're calling this point the location, yes, because it starts with the letter L, but also because Matthew understood that his own house and his hospitality was an evangelistic tool. How many of us live in evangelistic tools that cost us hundreds if not thousands of dollars a month and never use them to draw anyone closer to Jesus? Here was a Christian who under, or a follower who understood, I can at least give people a chance. And I know what's, what about half of you are thinking, that's just like a man. He doesn't have to clean the carpets. Our bathroom's a mess. And I know what 99% of us are thinking, we're just too busy. That's right. If we are too busy to have people into our homes to draw them closer to Jesus, we are too busy. When we have people into our homes, barriers come down. People are willing to talk. People are willing to, to, to know I'm listening. We are listening. People are willing to share. People are more likely to study with you in your home than anywhere else because there's a level of comfort and ease that's given there. I don't know how much of that Matthew understood, but I think he got that hospitality matters. We do the same. And with that, when people met Jesus, there was the lesson. You have recorded for us that there are some religious elites there, the scribes and the Pharisees are there. But I do find something quite interesting about the interaction here. If you look very carefully at verse, the end of verse, or middle of verse 15, excuse me, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and His disciples. Okay? Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, and they saw that He, Jesus, was eating with the tax collectors and sinners, said to His disciples, What's my point? Who were they not talking to? Well, on one side of the ledger, they weren't talking to Jesus. On the other side of the ledger, they weren't about to talk to this riffraff of people that were in this crowd. Let's just kind of play the middle here. Let's talk to the disciples. Let's sort of get Jesus at arm's length and sort of try to figure out what's kind of going on here. And Jesus, of course, knows what's going on. These people hadn't figured it out yet. They're about to figure it out. That Jesus knows what's going on. And so based upon that, Jesus gives a very brief lesson. And some of you are thinking, I wish you'd preach more like Jesus because the whole lesson is two sentences long. When He says this thing about being, people being sick, verse uh, 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He basically teaches a lesson about greed and about need. There are some people in this crowd, who, in this crowd in Matthew's house, who are greedy. You think you have no faults. You think you have no failures. And you're using religious things to keep this power, this position. It's nothing short of arrogance and greed. I didn't come for you. Those who are well have no new position. In other words, you don't think you're sick because you got it all together anyway, at least in your own mind. 
But the other side of the lesson is one of need. But those who are sick. Those who realize, I don't have it all together. Those who realize, I, I don't know the answer for all this stuff, but I at least know there has to be an answer somewhere, and I'm willing to look for it. Folks, it says something about the, the sinners, if you will, in this crowd, that they don't leave as Jesus is talking. It says something about them. that They realize, I can at least listen to this rabbi. I can agree or disagree. Now, how many people were changed on this day? I don't know. How many people said, I want to hear more from you? I don't know. But it says something that they realized there was a need and they wanted to listen to Jesus talk about the need. And so as Jesus then does that, what He's really doing is making a statement about His own purpose. When He says, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word call there comes from a word that means to utter aloud an invitation. Some people don't think they need it. They got it all together anyway. But I'm going to keep uttering that invitation for the people who know they need it. Jesus was never off mission. Here was Jesus at a banquet in His own honor. And He still stayed directly on mission to say there are people who need to hear about me and hear about my Father and who need to change their lives. So I'm going to call, I'm going to call, I'm going to call for anyone who will hear. What made that possible? A man who a few hours ago had been a tax collector. A man who a few hours ago wasn't part of the crowd. A man who a few hours ago would have been seen as an outcast, a shameful man, a not really much of a Jew, but whose life was changed enough that he wanted to try something. And you know people who need Jesus too. And so do I. You have people in your neighborhood. You have people you go to school with. You have people you work with. You have people in your family. You have classmates. You have friends. You have associates who need Jesus. And so far as this text goes, so far as this lesson goes, it really doesn't matter if you've been a follower of Jesus for 60 years or 60 minutes. It really doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It really doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or somewhere in the middle. It really doesn't matter if you're educated or, or not so well educated as far as formally goes. You can give people an opportunity to meet Jesus. There is something you can say, there is something you can do to look at someone in your life and say, I know someone I want you to meet. Oh, I can't invite him over for dinner, but I can invite you over for dinner and we can talk about him. Because he took me from shame to salvation like that. Do you know anyone who needs to hear that lesson? If you're breathing, you do. 
The question is, will you be the one to say anything? Jesus continues through His Word to call sinners to repentance. But we need to be the ones who draw the sinners close enough to Him to hear that call. Through cards, through invitations, through phone calls, emails, text messages, conversations. We need to never stop talking about Jesus. And at some point, someone will say, could you tell me a little more about Him? Oh yeah. Absolutely. You see, out of 8 billion people in the world, I'm just one. But so are you. And just as He loved me, He loves you. And just as He changed me, He can change you. Let me tell you. Let me show you. Let me introduce you to the great rabbi. He says, the one who believes is, and is baptized is the one who will be saved. A great number of us in this room this morning have done that. Have you? If not, He will change you in that moment. And then what? Be faithful unto death and He'll give you a crown of life. You need to come to Him today. If so, will you do so? While we stand and sing to encourage you.